Hello and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley. Thank you so much for being here. In this episode, do Republicans eat themselves when it's Texas and the person in question is Attorney General Ken Paxson? The answer seems to be yes. There's a deal on the debt ceiling debacle. Is it time to put the whole thing out to pasture? There's the story of the lawyer who used chat GPT in court. Suffice to say, it did not go well. Why are judges rebuking Social Security for massive errors on disability claims? And finally, Gina Davis has been compiling data on inclusion in Hollywood. A New York Times article about what she found may open some eyes. Let's start the dance. Ken Paxton has spent a great deal of his time as Texas Attorney General burnishing his conservative bona fides. He also has managed to weather several storms, including an indictment on securities fraud charges and charges by several of his own staff who accused him of bribery, corruption, and abuse of office. He managed to negotiate all these problems, although the securities thing is still pending, until now. His Republican colleagues, Republican colleagues, in the state's House of Representatives have voted to impeach him. That means he's been removed from office, at least temporarily. No statewide office holder has been impeached in the state of Texas in more than a century. His case now goes to the Senate, which will try Paxton. His situation reverberates far beyond the borders of the Lone Star State. Paxton was the point man for a number of conservative causes that went national. He's tried, among other things, to overturn the Affordable Care Act. He's tried to prosecute people who have assisted those seeking abortion. And he's one of the nation's tireless promoters of the mythology that Donald Trump won the 2020 election. He's also been point person on immigration, opposing almost every national effort to treat immigrants like human beings. So you see, it's easy to revel in Ken Paxton's misery, which has, by the way, shocked the Texas political firmament to the bone, to its core. It does my heart good on a personal level to see Republicans at each other's throats. Donald Trump, as you might expect, was loyal to his minion Paxton, calling impeachment, among other things, unjust. We'll see how long that lasts, because Trump has a tendency sometimes to praise people and then turn on them on a dime. It would also be easy to pin the corruption tag on all Republicans, as the GOP so often does when Democrats aggressively advocate for positions that the Republicans oppose. One tag I've long pinned on the Republican Party is overreach. Whenever they achieve a majority on either the state or national level, they invariably try to do too much. They desperately want to roll the clock back on so many levels they get their legs cracked in the bargain. Paxton's trouble should also be a lesson to Democrats. Infighting is rarely, if ever, productive. And make no mistake, the Republicans in Texas are now being forced to choose up sides. Either they support the people in the House that impeached Paxton, or they support Paxton. And it's a stark, stark choice with repercussions no matter which position those Republican lawmakers take. Even though Texas Democrats are a minority, they ought to be figuring out how to take advantage of this seismic fissure among the opposition. On another front, 
it seems we have a deal on the debt ceiling. Over the weekend, President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy held marathon talks and have emerged with a deal they say will avert the nation defaulting on its obligations. By midweek, we should have a clear idea of who blinked on this. Right now, both sides are claiming victory, which is the way of the world in politics. At the same time, both the conservative and progressive wings of Congress have problems with reported elements of the deal. I say reported because there's been nothing official about the deal's components as yet. What's happening is people are leaking to the media, which is something they do in D.C. like they wake up in the morning and start breathing or continue breathing for want of a better term. The fact that an agreement has been announced does not mean a bipartisan majority of House members have been cobbled together. I think it's called brinkmanship, and McCarthy and Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries have their work cut out for them. Also in the Senate, you know, this has got to go through the Senate as well, and there are some senators who are talking about slowing down the process past the point where default looms. I don't know why they would do that. I don't know why they would do that. To make a point, to get something across, to get some concession from Democrats, I I don't know. On the other hand, maybe it's time to get rid of the debt ceiling altogether. After all, it was crafted and created by Congress in 1917, the first year America got into the First World War, a very, very different time than now. In recent years, It's been used to hold a gun to the head of the American people, not to the different political parties, not to the Congress, a gun to the head of the American people, usually for partisan political advantage. Meanwhile, American democracy suffers on the world stage. Now, politicians in America don't really care about the world stage. Let's be clear about that. But the fact of the matter is that the Russians and the Chinese, and other autocratic regimes across the world look at this debt ceiling debacle and they say to their people, and they say to their media, which then transmits it to their people, well, look at American democracy. They can't even get this simple thing done properly. They have to worry about defaulting on their obligations. Chinese aren't worried about defaulting on their obligations. The Russians, with all the sanctions, and the prosecution of the Ukraine war, at least we don't know that they're worried about defaulting on much of anything. So how does it look to them when America comes a razor's edge, a razor's edge from defaulting on its obligations? Economic and political opportunity are particularly what the Russians and the Chinese are gonna make out of this. And keep in mind, Joe Biden had to cut short his trip overseas to come back and deal with this. Keep in mind what that means to the people he was supposed to meet with and ended up not meeting with. Remember I told you last episode the Republicans wanted cuts, but they didn't know or wouldn't say what cuts they wanted. And there's this. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned Democrats after the midterm elections to raise the debt ceiling while they still control the House. Needless to say, they ignored Ms. Yellen's advice. Yet it's Yellen who would have to draw up contingency plans in the event of an actual default. 
Published reports say paying off bondholders would be a top priority. And what little we know about the proposed debt ceiling deal says that poor people may again have to bear the brunt of whatever spending cuts the White House and Congress have agreed on. To me, the answer is simple. If the president needs to invoke the 14th Amendment to end a debt standoff, so be it. Otherwise, just get rid of it and rid the nation of this periodic psychodrama that does not need to happen. Up next, did you hear the one about the lawyer who used chat GPT to file a brief? No, no, I'm serious. This is The Intersection. You're listening to Mark Riley. It's the only podcast where the world makes sense. Welcome back to The Intersection. The legal case began simply enough. A man, Robert Mata, was suing Avianca Airlines because he said he was injured by a serving cart, which hit his knee. When Avianca asked a Manhattan federal judge to throw out the case, the man's lawyer objected, citing numerous court decisions in a 10-page brief. Trouble was, when Avianca's lawyers began looking up the cases cited, they could find none of them. Same thing for the judge. Not one. Then last week, the lawyer who wrote the brief admitted in court that he had used ChatGPT, the latest sensation in the world of EI. Stephen Schwartz from the law firm Levidal, Levidal and Oberman threw himself on the mercy of the court, saying he never intended to deceive. He said he used ChatGPT to do his legal research, unaware that it was, in this case, totally unreliable. In other words, the stuff that Chat gave him to present in this brief was totally false. None of it, none of it was true. In one case, I think there was a, a situation where they cited a particular case, but it turned out the information they put in the brief dealt with another case. That's how bad this was. Now, Schwartz's day of reckoning comes on June 8th, when the judge will hold a hearing on possible sanctions. No word yet on whether Robert Mata fired Schwartz or whether he still works for the same law firm. Now, I must admit, AI and ChatGPT is voodoo to me. I've only used it once as a test. I asked it to rank from first to last the top 25 drum and bugle corps in America during a specific period. It's a subject I know a bit about since I marched many years ago and have followed the activity for almost a half century. The list I was given was accurate in one sense and deeply flawed in another. This of course was filtered through my own opinion and therefore subjective. I came away feeling like in this one instance, I can't speak for all of it, but in this one instance, my own knowledge was superior to what I had gotten from AI. Now, I'm not stupid. Chat GPT can be really useful in certain circumstances. It's just that when it comes to legal briefs, 
It pays to use conventional research tools. The efficacy of AI will be debated far into the future because it seems to me that it's here to stay. Trying to get rid of it would like trying to put toothpaste back in a tube. But, you know, some people will try that too. It's here to stay. Long story short, its implications for virtually all forms of creative expression has yet to be fully explored and quantified. From where I sit, technology is truly a double-edged sword. Politicians will try to regulate it, largely without success. That's because AI is the Wild West. That is, little regulated and even less well understood. I certainly understand this. It's a technology human beings created, and it will be up to us as human beings to get the best out of it while trying to filter out the worst. What exactly is going on with Social Security? The SSA, Social Security Administration, is coming under heavy fire from judges across the country. Why? They're not happy with Social Security's mistakes in wrongfully denying disability claims. And this is not a few, nor is it limited to any one part of the country. In one case, profiled in the Washington Post, three different federal judges found fault with Social Security's rejection of a Colorado man's claim. Each time, he got a new hearing, but the administration rejected his claim each time. It seems Social Security is oblivious to even judges' rulings. Consider this from the Washington Post. It's not from me, it's from the Post. Dead quote. In the last two fiscal years, federal judges considering appeals for denied benefits found fault with almost six in every 10 cases and sent them back to administrative law judges at Social Security for new hearings. The highest rate of rejections in years, agency statistics show. Court remands are on pace to reach similar levels this year, end quote. So what gives? Advocates for the disabled point to internal pressure to deny benefits to as many claimants as possible. This is not small numbers, by the way. Each year, some 2 million people, I was stunned when I saw this figure. Each year, 2 million people apply for help when they can no longer work. In other words, they go to Social Security seeking disability benefits. The issue gets a standard response, by the way, from Social Security, who told the Post, quote, the agency evaluates the totality of the evidence and decides cases based upon the issues and evidence in the particular case, end quote. The process, quoting again, the process has always been and continues to be non-adversarial, end quote. Part of the problem seems to be that judges, both liberal and conservative, tend to send cases with errors right back to the administrative law judges that made the mistakes in the first place. Maybe all this is because there's a public perception that a large number of disability benefit recipients could actually work. That perception is too often reinforced by media, and I've seen it with my own two eyes. There are certainly people who fall into that category, but are they the majority? I don't think so. Seems to me Social Security ought to be doing a better job. 
And finally, Gina Davis, remember her? She's been putting together a database of diversity and inclusion in Hollywood. Her findings, fact-based, are not pretty. This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, you're here with Mark Riley. It's the voice that you know and the information you can trust. Welcome back to The Intersection. Gina Davis is an Oscar-winning actress. You may remember A League of Their Own. You may remember Thelma and Louise. She's also a Mensa member and an expert archer. She's also an expert in compiling data. Almost two decades ago, she formed the Gina Davis Institute on Gender in Media. She began by looking at how women and girls were portrayed in children's programming, because at the time her daughter was a toddler. She also now has expanded her findings beyond gender to include race, sexuality, age, and a number of other markers, including weight. Did you know, and this stunned me, did you know that overweight characters on children's programming are twice as likely to be violent? There are other data-driven conclusions that might tend to make parents question exactly what their children are seeing. Remember, this is data-driven, not some politician's fevered speculation about kids and drag shows. Other findings are equally stark. Of the 101 top-grossing G-rated films from 1990 to 2005, just 28% of the speaking roles were for women. Even as late as 2018, the data shows things haven't changed much. Why? How about the fact that 92% of film executives were white? That's less than Donald Trump's cabinet at an equivalent time. Black representation in film may have evolved with the Black Panther series and other directorial and cinematic triumphs, but the question of who makes decisions about what gets made makes all the difference. Gina Davis's work has, I think, had an impact, largely because her institute often is able to affect change from the inside. Part of that influence comes from Davis's ability to show numbers to people that matter. With the extraordinary influence film and television have in the public mind, it's more and more important that change comes from within. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.